God, this morning, uh, my prayer is, is very simple. God, would your spirit come and would he fill us up? Would he illumine the scriptures to us? Would he help us to fall more in love with who you are? Would he change us on the spot? Would he help us to trust you? And God, would he give us a taste of what your kingdom will be like for all of eternity? God, we come into this room in different places. Some of us uh, are here and it's been a joyful week. We're looking forward to a joyful Thanksgiving. Some of us, it's a really hard season right now. And Thanksgiving this week, it's just not gonna be the same. God, wherever any, everyone here is at, Lord, would you meet them? Would you comfort them? Would you remind them of your grace and your mercy? Would you remind them of your sovereignty and control and that you are good? Be with us right now as we jump into your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, so, so this week is, is Thanksgiving. So many of us are gonna gather with family and friends this week around a table and we're going to celebrate this holiday of Thanksgiving. And one thing I still don't understand about this holiday is it seems like it's the one holiday where it's centered around getting around the table with a bunch of people and feasting. And for some reason, the choice of meat that we have is turkey on Thanksgiving. I mean, I like turkey, don't get me wrong, but if you're gonna have one day where we're gonna spend all this money and feast, I don't, I don't get why it's turkey. But uh, there's better options, I think, regardless. Um, but, but most of us are gonna enjoy a feast this week uh, with people who are close to us, whether that's family or friends. And that might be something that you're looking forward to this week or that might be something that you're anxious about or you're really dreading. But this morning, uh, here's what I want to do. I, I want to talk about this idea of feasting. And I want to show you in the scriptures how God has designed your soul and your heart to need to feast. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about the holiday of Thanksgiving, but what I am talking about is the idea that you and I need a regular dose of sitting around the table with others, being fully present, enjoying good food and good drink, and having good, encouraging, God-glorifying conversation. In fact, I would go as far to say that feasting needs to be a spiritual discipline that we practice that is just as important as other spiritual disciplines like reading the scriptures and praying and fasting and, and coming and gathering with the church. That we should discipline ourselves to feast with others on a regular basis. Uh, just the other day, I experienced a feast like this, and it was unplanned. It was spontaneous. As many of you know, I had the privilege of taking uh, six other men from our church down to the Dominican Republic for 
several days. We spent some time with Noah Joyner, a missionary we support down there, and the Hispaniola Institute of Theology. And this institute is located on the north coast of the Dominican Republic near uh, Porta Plata. And uh, that means the, the, the institute is near the beach. And one evening we had some free time. And so all seven of us on the trip, and plus Noah, plus uh, another missionary couple we are with, Jody and Perla, uh, we all had dinner together uh, at this little restaurant that was uh, on the beach there. And so it was this beautiful evening. We had a bunch of people together who had been serving the Lord together that entire day. And we all gathered around this table for a meal. We ordered food, we ordered drinks, and we sat at the table and we talked for three hours. And what we did is we spent time specifically encouraging each person around that table. We expressed our gratitude for each person. We pointed out strengths that we saw in each person. We pointed out ways that we had seen the Lord use each person. And then we prayed and we thanked and, and gave praise to God for his goodness to us, his grace to us in Christ, and specifically for each person around the table. We did that for three hours, unplanned. Good food, good drink, good company around the table, God-glorifying, encouraging conversation for three hours. This is feasting. And God has designed your soul to need this on a regular basis. And so this morning, I want to show you where we see this in the Bible. I want you to see why this is good for you. And I also want to teach you how to do it. And so, let's begin. We're going to jump in uh, the book of John, Gospel of John, chapter 2. So here in, in John, chapter 2, Jesus is just getting started with his public ministry. So at this point, not many people around know who Jesus is. Right? His parents know who Jesus actually is. But Jesus, at this point, had not been explicit about the fact that he was the son of God so far in his life. So all of his friends and all of his neighbors in Nazareth, they did not know Jesus necessarily as the son of God. They knew Jesus as the carpenter down the street. But as we jump into John 2, Jesus is going to start revealing who he is as the son of God. So let's read real quick, John 2. I'm going to start with verses 1 and 2, get us oriented to what's going on in the text. Here's what it says. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. All right, so, so real quick. Now, the town of Cana, about eight miles north of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth in the Galilee region. And Jesus, his, some of his disciples, and Mary, Jesus' mom, were all invited to this wedding. So we just assume this was friends of Jesus and his family. But one thing you need to know about weddings in this culture during Jesus' day is that the reception lasted for a week. All right, so it went a long time, and it was the responsibility of the groom to provide food and drink for all of his guests for an entire week. And it would be socially devastating to the groom if he were to run out. 
And so, if you think weddings today are expensive, think of what the price per head would be if you had to do food and drink for a reception for an entire week. Well, let's jump into our text to see what happens. Back to verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, actually, that was not a derogatory statement. We, that kind of grinds at us the wrong way. In their culture, to say woman like that or to say man like that, it was very much accepted. So it would have been much more gentle than how I read it. It would have been more like, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That's the best advice anyone will ever get. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do, right? We could pray and end the sermon, go from here and do everything Jesus tells you to do, and that's it. That's what his mother says to his servants. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So we have the capacity right now of 120 to 180 gallons of water in these jars. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people had drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So obviously the groom at this wedding has a problem. He ran out of wine, and you don't do that at weddings. And Mary, Jesus' mother, brings this to Jesus' attention. And the text seems to hint that Mary was hoping that Jesus would do something about this. I mean, Jesus was God. And Mary knew that at some point Jesus was going to have to reveal himself as God. Maybe this could be a good time to do that. And that explains why Jesus had this odd answer to her in verse 4 when he says to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. See, Jesus was saying to his mother that it, it was not time yet for him to fully reveal to everyone his true identity as the Son of God and the Messiah. But I wonder, the text doesn't tell us this, but I wonder if Jesus said that with a little twinkle in his eye because of Mary's response in verse 5 to the servants. Do whatever he says to do. It's almost as if Jesus hinted that although it was not time to reveal his identity, he was going to help out in a small way. So Jesus has the servants fill up all the, the six stone jars, all right? So 120, 180 gallons of water. So we're talking the equivalent of 600 to 900 bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. And he had a glass of this water delivered to the master of the feast. And 
he sips that water and what he tastes, and I'm bringing Isaiah 25 into this, what we just read, Esperanza just read for us, I'm guessing is a well-aged, robust wine. And he's impressed. Not by Jesus, but by the groom. Because he assumed the groom saved the best wine for the end of the party. So you have to see in this text that most people in the party did not know that Jesus had miraculously turned water into wine. It seems as if the only people who knew that this happened were the servants, based on verse 9, Jesus' disciples, based on verse 11, and I assume Jesus' mother knew that he had done something. And I'm sure the groom was confused because everyone's like, whoa, Man, you saved the best wine for last, but I'm sure he also didn't say anything. He just kind of took it. I'm not, I don't know though. But to everyone else, they assumed the groom had provided an amazing wine to close out this wedding feast. So you have to understand something about this particular wedding feast. There were two different realities going on at the same time. In one sense, there were a bunch of people having a feast celebrating the wedding of two people that had occurred earlier in that week, right? Last night, I had the privilege of marrying Blake Thompson and Amanda um, down in Charlottesville. We had a big party afterwards because we were celebrating what had happened in this ceremony just an hour before it. But at this wedding in, in John 2, Jesus was also doing something prophetic, something that was looking forward that was just for his disciples. When the master of the feast had proclaimed, in verse 10, the master of the feast says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus was providing a sign to his disciples. Almost as if our lives were a feast and Jesus was saving the good wine till the end. But what does that even mean? Well, to understand, we need to look at all of what the Bible has to say about feasts. And, and there's a lot. Feasting and celebrating was something that God commanded his people to do in the Old Testament a lot. If you go to Leviticus chapter 23, we get a list of all the feasts that God commanded his people to keep. And you, when you read each of these feasts, you read about them, you see that they were all designed to be a way for the Israelites to celebrate something God had done, but also for each of these feasts, there was a prophetic element to them. It probably was not obvious to the Israelites themselves, but as they celebrated these feasts and God's faithfulness in the past, there was a sense through which God had not yet served the best wine. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you go to Leviticus 23, you get a list of feasts. So the first one you get there is the Feast of the First Fruits. This was a feast where God's people would celebrate the first fruits of the harvest, the first crops that came up. And they would sacrifice those to God and celebrate that God had provided for them, that their fields are producing crop. And so they would celebrate that, and they would also take this as assurance that God is continuing to provide. And yet, 1 Corinthians 15.20 calls the resurrection of Jesus the first fruit of the dead. 
Because Jesus conquered sin and death. He is the first fruit. And this is proof that there will be more fruit to come. Jesus will be able to conquer sin and death for all who call upon him in the future. So the first fruit of the harvest was the first glass of wine. But the resurrection of Jesus was the better glass of wine. You have the Feast of Weeks. This was a feast at the end of the harvest. And God's people would celebrate all that God had provided for them, that all the crops came in and they would praise God for his provision. And they would praise God that he's not just meeting their physical needs, but he's also meeting all of their needs. And so it's not a coincidence that in Acts chapter 2, When Pentecost happened, when the Holy Spirit came down and indwelled the church, that happened as the people of God were celebrating the Feast of Weeks. Because God provides for all of our needs. And he's provided us the helper. And so the harvest was the first glass of wine, but the Holy Spirit was the better glass of wine. Then you get the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, Jewish people celebrate this feast as Rosh Hashanah. This is a feast where trumpets are blasted at the beginning of the Jewish calendar as a way of celebrating how God has sustained them over the last year and looking to the year to come. And so God's continued faithfulness year after year is the first glass of wine, but God's eternal preservation of his people through his defeat of all sin and all evil at the end of the age is the better glass of wine. This is why 1 Thessalonians 4 says that when Jesus returns, he's gonna do it at a blast of a trumpet. You got the Feast of Booths. This was a feast to celebrate how God had sustained Israel as they were going through the desert from Egypt into the promised land. And so what the people of God would do is they would live in tents for eight days as they remember how God sustained them while they were in the wilderness. And it was a way for celebrating how God had brought them into a more permanent dwelling in the promised land. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about how our bodies in this fallen world are like tents. They're temporary dwellings. And God will sustain us. And one day we'll be brought into God's kingdom and given a more permanent dwelling. So see, God's faithfulness to Israel in the desert on the way to the promised land, that's the first glass of wine. But God bringing us into his kingdom for eternity, that's the the better glass of wine to come. Last and definitely not least, a lot of feasts, I told you. We have the Passover feast. This is a feast where God's people celebrated how God had rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. As an act of judgment on Egypt, who was enslaving Israel, God was going to strike down the firstborn of every person in Egypt. And so he instructed Israel to take the blood of a lamb and paint it on their doorpost. And on the evening of the judgment, if he saw the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he would pass over that house. And thus, all of Israel was spared from judgment because of the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. And after this, Israel was able to escape Egypt on their journey to the promised land. And so every year, Israel would celebrate the Passover feast and remember how God rescued them from their slavery by the blood of the lamb. 
But see, this was just the first glass of wine. There was a better glass of wine to come, and it was this better glass of wine that Jesus was referring to when he turned water into wine at the wedding feast. Israel celebrated how God rescued them from their slavery to Egypt, but Jesus has come to rescue all of God's people from their slavery to sin. So this is why John the Baptist, uh, in John chapter 1, just one chapter before we were reading this morning, when he saw Jesus come on the scene, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? Jesus is the Lamb of God because he came in order to offer his own blood on the cross that would cause God to pass over all who believe in him when it comes to his judgment. And this is why Jesus went to the cross during the Passover feast, because he was the true Lamb of God. And his blood would be the better glass of wine. Hours before Jesus went to the cross, he was celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples. And on the table, all kinds of food, but there was some bread and there was some wine. And Jesus took some of that bread and he, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Eat this, feast on this as you remember me. And he took a glass of wine and he raised it and he said, this is my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And Jesus instructed his church to eat bread and drink wine often when they gather together as a feast to remember and to celebrate what Christ accomplished on the cross so that we could be saved from our sins. Right? In the same way, the Israelites celebrated all of these feasts to remember what God had done. This communion, that's, that's our feast. Right? So you have Passover, celebrating how God rescued Israel from Egypt, yet looking forward to God's rescue of all of his people in and through Christ. And now we have communion Celebrating how God has rescued us from our sin in Christ. But communion also looks forward to an even better glass of wine as well. When Jesus was serving his disciples the first communion meal, he said this to his disciples in Matthew 26, 29. So, just imagine Jesus reclining at the table, feasting all of this good food, and he raises a glass of wine. And he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is saying that something even better is coming. There will be a day that that Jesus will return at the end of the age and he's going to rid the world of all sin, of all evil, of all suffering. He's gonna wipe away every tear from our face. He's going to bring an end to death as Esperanza read for us in Isaiah 25. And on that day, you know what the first thing we're gonna do when we get to God's kingdom? You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna have a wedding feast. Like in John 2, because the church, which it, the Bible refers to as the bride, 
and Christ himself, which the Bible refers to as the groom, will finally be joined together for eternity. And you know what you do at weddings? You feast and you party. And when Jesus raised that glass, he was telling his disciples that as you feast on communion, remember how I have saved you from your sin, but also be filled with hope at the feast that is to come in God's kingdom. And so in just a few moments, we're going to partake of this feast together. But I first want to take a few minutes and jump off of all of this biblical precedent for feasting and say that that this idea of feasting with other people in order to celebrate the faithfulness of God and look forward to what he's going to do in the future, this shouldn't just be restricted to communion. Scripture certainly does exhort us to enjoy communion and feast on communion often when we gather. But I want us to think about what it would look like to insert a disciplined practice of feasting into our lives on a more regular and informal basis. Right, if you think about many of the spiritual disciplines that we try and do and practice, you know, most of them are designed to fill us up because we have a need, right? So we read God's word so we can be filled and reminded of truth. We pray and we fast because God is sovereign and we're not, and we need his will and his guidance. We gather with the church because we need to be encouraged and built up. But feasting is different. In his book, The Common Rule, Justin Early says this about feasting. He says, we were made to feast, not in order to become full, but because we are full. We are to celebrate that fullness by feasting. We don't feast because we have a need. We feast to celebrate how God has already met our needs, and we feast to rejoice in how he will meet them in the future. You know, it's probably true that as we engage in our faith, as we try to practice our faith, we spend more time fretting about how much we fall short as followers of Christ and less time celebrating and rejoicing in what God has done in our lives and in others' lives. We spend more time thinking about how our sin and how it just has this hold on us and less time thinking about how God has set us free from it. We spend more time thinking about our failures and less time thinking about how God has given us gifts and used us in incredible ways. We spend more time thinking about our weaknesses and less time thinking about God's strength. And feasting is what we do to reverse that pattern. And so here's what I'm excited to announce. I'm I'm excited to announce that we're gonna start doing something together as a church next year in 2020, something that we're calling Grace Hill Feasts. And here's what they are. Grace Hill Feasts are gonna happen every month, every other month. We're still getting the logistics together. But we're gonna identify people in the church who love to host people for meals. So if you have a gift of hospitality, this is a great way for you to serve in the church and exercise this gift. 
And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna randomly assign each host two to six other people from the church for them to host at their house for dinner. And we're intentionally keeping each dinner small so that people can get to know each other and that you have time to properly feast together. So this time will include good food, getting to know each other, encouraging each other, and intentional conversation about the goodness and faithfulness of God. Much like the feast that I enjoyed a few days ago with some of the guys in this church. And every time we do Graceful Feast, we're gonna randomly assign people again to the host. So each time you do it, you will be with different people. So not only will this help us build community here at Grace Hill, it will give our souls a regular dose of feasting and celebrating the Lord together. And what we're starting with Grace Hill Feast is not just a dinner club, but it's something more than that, something that our, our souls need. And so in order to protect the integrity and the purpose of these feasts, some ground rules are gonna be necessary. So I wanna give you some ground rules that you will, you'll hear these again when it comes to Grace Hill Feasts. And I'm gonna give some credit to Mike Cosper in his book, Recapturing the Wonder, as he helped me think through some of these ground rules. But I have five ground rules for feasting. All right, here's rule number one. No screens. Right, I know it's tempting to share with others via social media what you're doing or what you're eating. You need, to, you need to let the world know. But feasting is about being present with the people at the table and savoring the moment, not capturing the moment. It's an exercise of taking a break from everything else going on in the world and putting your full focus on the joy that God has brought into your life. The other night when I feasted with the guy, some of the guys from our church, and never even thought my mind to pull my phone out of my pocket because we are just in the moment. Here's rule number two. Feasts are the exception, not the rule. Here's what I mean. They're about savoring and enjoying the blessing of God. So this is not the time to count calories. This is not time to stick to that diet or worry about what you're eating. Of course, if you got like food allergies or intolerances, that's one thing. But this is a time to allow your delight of good food and good drink to match your delight in the Lord with others. Feasts are the exception, not the rule. Rule number three, give the kids what they want. Whether you bring your kids to a great soul feast or not, it's gonna be up to your host. It'll depend all the way around. But if you bring them, this isn't the night to force feed them raw broccoli, broccoli so they can have dessert. This is an evening for them to enjoy eating as much or as little as they want. All right, so my advice actually is just put a huge bowl of macaroni and cheese on the kids' table and let them go to town. Give the kids what they want. Feasting is the exception, not the rule. Rule number four, pressure is off. Pressure's off. I want to quote straight from Mike Cosper in his book on this one. Here's what he says. He says, feasts should be celebrations, not formal dining affairs. So don't go crazy with place settings. Don't worry if the house isn't perfectly put together. And don't freak out about the timing of your meals. Serve some snacks. Welcome people into the kitchen while you finish making the meal. My wife and I will often invite friends over early in the day, three or four o'clock. 
and will cook with them, inviting their help on laying out the snacks and slicing the onions. Pressure's off. This is about being together, not entertaining, not impressing others, enjoying the moment together. And rule number five, enjoy God and encourage one another. This is the most important rule. We don't want feasts to be filled with obligatory small talk. It's not the time to go on and on about what's going on in, your, in the job or, you know, politics. Oh, please, let's not even put that in there. Right? But we want to have conversations about the goodness of God and how we see God working in one another. But we also know that you might be feasting with people that you don't know all that well. That's why we're going to provide hosts with ways to get the conversation going and scripture readings to remind us of the goodness of God and prayers to pray to to focus the evening on the Lord. But I believe that if we all make it a regular practice to feast together and to follow these rules to ensure that our hearts are prepared for a joyful evening, not only will our joy and our faith in the Lord increase, but we will build a culture of unplanned feasting in this church. A culture where when people get together, even if it's not a Grace Hill feast night, they spend that time giving glory to God and encouraging one another. And joy will be contagious. And I, I want us to be that church where joy is contagious. And so I I wanna close our time uh, this morning with all of us feasting on communion together, where we take bread and remember the broken body of Christ and we take the cup and we remember his blood poured out on our behalf. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are invited to this table to feast with us this morning to come and celebrate what Christ has accomplished and to look forward to the feast that we'll enjoy in his kingdom. And I wanna lead us into this feast this morning in a unique way. I would like for us to read a prayer together. If you came in in your bulletins, you probably received this sheet of paper. It says, Feasting with Friends. If you would pull that out, if you don't have one and you'd like one, you can raise your hand, and hopefully we have a few extras running around. If not, find someone who has one so you can read off with them. But I want us to read this prayer together. You'll notice as we read this prayer that this prayer was written and designed to be prayed before an actual feast when you're at a table that's full of all kinds of different foods and where you have glasses that you can raise and and clink together. So obviously we're not going to be able to do all of that as we read this together. But the reason why I wanted to read it together this morning and the reason why I printed it for you is maybe you could take this prayer with you And on Thursday, when you celebrate a feast with people, if your table would appreciate it, maybe you could lead them in this prayer. I think it would be a blessing to you and those that you're feasting with. So if we could all stand together, I'm gonna lead us in this prayer. I will read the parts, the parts that are in bold and italicized. I need all of us to read loudly and joyfully together, right? This is a feast This is not some boring religious ritual. This is a feast, right? Does that make sense? So if it's not loud, I'm gonna make you repeat it, all right? 
And I'm going to have these people on their microphones helping us as well, okay? So we're going to pray this together, and then we'll feast on communion together. Let's pray. Together, joyfully is indeed a serious affair. For feasting and all enjoyment, enjoyments gratefully taken are, at their heart, acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. But the joy of fellowship and the welcome and comfort of friends new and old and the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal and are the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come and that will be unending. So let our feast this day be joined to those sure victories secured by Christ. Let it be to us now a delight and a glad foretaste of his eternal kingdom. Bless Bless us, O Lord, in this this feast. Bless us, O Lord, as we linger over our cups and over this table laden with good things, as we relish the delights of varied texture and flavor, of aromas and savory spices, of dishes prepared as acts of love and blessing, of sweet delights made sweeter by the communion of saints. May this shared meal and our pleasure in it bear witness against the artifice and deceptions of the prince of the darkness that would blind this world to hope. May it strike at the root of the lie that would drain life of meaning and the world of joy and suffering of redemption. May this, our feast, fall like a great hammer blow against that brittle night, shattering the gloom, reawakening our hearts, stirring our imaginations, focusing our vision on the kingdom of heaven that is to come, on the kingdom that is promised, on the kingdom that is already indeed among us. For the resurrection of all good things has already joyfully begun. May this feast be an echo of that great supper of the Lamb, a foreshadowing of the great celebration that awaits the children of God. Where two or more of us are gathered, O Lord, there you have promised to be. And here we are. And so here are you. Take joy, O King, in this our feast. Take joy, O King. Take joy. All will be well. All will be well. Nothing good and right and true will be lost forever. All good things will be restored. Feast and be reminded. Take joy, little flock. Take joy. Let battle be joined. Let battle be joined. Now you who are loved by the Father, prepare your hearts and give yourself wholly to this celebration of joy, to the glad company of saints, to the comforting fellowship of the Spirit, and to the abiding presence of Christ, who is seated among us both as our host and as our honored guest, and still yet as our conquering king. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, take feast, take delight. When you're ready, I invite you to come forward, take of the cup, take of the bread, feast on communion, and we'll end our time in song.